Well, we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 12. We'll be working from verse 20 through verse 36 this morning. The title of the message is The Hour Has Come. And if you would turn to John 12. And read along with me as I begin in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Father, we we love your word. We love the truth that your word teaches us. We love the life that your word gives us. We love the hope that your word provides for us. Lord, we love your word. And this morning as we study the words that you have inspired Lord, we ask that you would help each person here to be attuned to your voice, that they would hear you speak. And Lord, help me, help me in my inadequacies and my weaknesses to represent your truth and your name in such a manner that your church receives a blessing this morning. And for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we've been in John for quite a, <clears throat> quite a while now. In John 11, Jesus' greatest sign takes place. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. That is the last of Jesus' signs. And quickly afterwards, after raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus heads off into the wilderness area to escape being arrested by the Pharisees, by the leadership of the Jews. And he stays there for a number of weeks. And then some weeks later, he comes back to Bethany where a dinner is given in his honor, where Mary anoints him with perfume in preparation in expectation of his upcoming death. And then the following day, Jesus leaves Bethany, making his way to Jerusalem where he enters as the triumphant king. And the Passover is beginning. As John 12 opens up, the narrative of John dramatically slows down. Up until John 12, it has been more than a two-year period. And now from John 12 until the end of John in chapter 21, it's all of one week. John slows his narrative, his gospel down so that we can, I think, enter into understanding the week known as the Passion Week, to understand what our Savior is experiencing, not just over months and weeks, but literally hour by hour, that we can enter in with Him. The book of signs has closed, those first 12 chapters, and now we are entering into what is known as the book of Passion. So now in Jerusalem, Jesus has entered. As you read the other, the synoptic gospels, you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see that a number of things have happened as Jesus has gone into Jerusalem. But John doesn't include those. John just gets right to the heart of the matter. And as we read in verse 20, we see a seemingly insignificant event set off, in motion, set in motion, the most important moment in history leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These Greeks were either proselytes, those who had come to faith in, in believing in Judaism, believing in God, or were having an interest who were worshipers of God, although they may not know which God, but these Greeks come. And so they came to Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida. Uh, there was a, a large Greek population there. And, and they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip is a Greek name, so it's, it's understandable why they would seek him out. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus totally dis, disses the Greeks. I mean, he just, it's as though the Greeks didn't even exist. They, they're, just a, they're just used by John to set up what is about to happen. Because the Greeks have no idea what their coming means. They have no idea. But as John looks back, John sees the significance of this moment of the Greeks coming. These men, these Greeks, are the very people, as they're seeking after Christ, they're the very people the Pharisees are struggling with in verse 19, just before verse 20. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, look. 
The world has gone after him. And now we see these Greeks that the, the message of Christ has gone beyond the Jews and is now reaching the world as it is known in that day. The world that God so loved, as we read in John 3.16, the world that Jesus speaks of where he says that all men will be drawn to him as he's lifted up in verse 32. The, the world is coming. And so this significant moment as the world comes, Jesus declares that now that the world is coming, now that the world has been opened up to who the Christ is, his hour has come. Jesus answered them, the hour has come. Now, up to this point, as we've read through John, the, the hour is known as the appointed time for Jesus' death. The appointed time for his crucifixion. The appointed time where he will be raised from the dead. The appointed time where he will ascend back into heaven. The appointed time where he will be glorified. The hour. The hour that that Jesus repeatedly says up until this point, my hour has not yet come. It's always been in the future. It's always been ahead. Jesus consistently says, my hour has not yet come. Now, I don't know... I. I like to watch Fox News. The other day, I was watching Fox News, and it was very interesting when one of the, the anchors got on, and you see this, this tagline below, Fox News Alert. So you see News Alert. You think, okay, what's coming? And so the Fox News Alert was this. Paul Ryan has not yet decided to become Speaker of the House. So it was a Fox News alert about nothing. It was a Fox News alert about a non-event. Nothing was happening. And yet it was like three minutes of news about something that hasn't happened and may not happen. Now, here in all of these verses up to this Nothing has been happening in regards to Jesus' hour not yet coming. In, in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, My hour has not yet come. In 4.21 and 4.23, he talks about his now is not the hour. In 5.25 and 5.28, again, he talks about that when the hour comes. In 7.30 and 8.20, he says, My hour has not yet come. And now we reach this event. This is a news event. This is not a non-news event. Bible news alert. His hour has come. And that is what transitions chapter 12 and the rest of this book that leads to the most important moment in all of human history. The crucifixion of Christ. The climactic hour of his death is here. And that hour has one primary purpose. And Jesus says it here. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be 
glorified. It's not uncommon, myself included, to think that the benefits of, to think about all the benefits the death of Christ brings to us. That when we think of the death of Christ, our, our minds quickly go to all of the benefits that, that were eternal life and freed from the slavery of sin and made the righteousness of God in Christ and, and all of the, the inheritance as sons and that we're adopted into the family of God and, and His Spirit has been given to us and we're no longer strangers and they, we're, 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 now, we're now in God's family. All of the benefits just come, come pouring into our minds when we think about the death of Christ. But, but that's looking at the death of Christ from a human perspective. John wants us to see the death of Christ not from the benefits that it brings to us, but the benefit it brings to God, which is his glorification. Primarily, the crucifixion of Christ is not about what it does for you. It's about what it does for God. The death of Christ is about God being glorified, not about your salvation. That's a wonderful benefit And that's why he came. But it was ultimately he came to bring glory to his name. To bring glory to the Father. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He could have, John could have written and recorded Jesus' words. The hour has come, maybe Jesus says, for you to be saved. The hour has come for you to be rescued. The hour has come for you to be ransomed. And he makes those comments. But here we see the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this thought continues further on as Jesus says to the Lord that He wants, he wants the, the Lord to be glorified. And the Lord says, I will be glorified. And I will, I have been glorified by by your life. In verse, uh, in verse 29. Why do I lose my place? Uh, that's sorry. Verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Father, he says in verse 28, glorify your name. The hour is all about the glory of God. It would be so easy for us to continue to think about the, the crucifixion as all about us. And it's not all about you. And it's not all about me. It's all about the glory of God. Now that has tremendous implications upon us as Christians, as a church family. See, throughout Jesus' earthly life and ministry, we see glimpses of his glory when he, he performs these signs, his glorious incarnation. That is a glorious moment that displays the glory of God. It is, the incarnation is the gospel's grand theme and displays the glory of God. I mean, Christmas, and we talk about glory to God in the highest. It is about this wonderful 
wonderful plan of God in sending his son that God would be glorified by sending his son. It is the gospel's grand theme because without the incarnation, without the incarnation, there is no virgin birth. There is no perfect life. There is no crucifixion. There is no resurrection. There is no ascension. There is no glorification. God didn't need to be glorified by sending his son. Oh, the incarnation is this grand theme. But God in his love and mercy and kindness does send his son. He does send a redeemer. He does glorify his name by his love for us. And the culmination of God glorifying his name in Christ is the crucifixion. It is where John is heading in chapter 12. The two, the crucifixion and God's glory are inseparably linked. We can't can't separate the two. Jesus, who left the glory of heaven, who reveals his glory on earth, who is now in his, in his death will manifest the supreme glory of God. And then will be in his ascension, enthroned once again. Enthroned from the place that he had left for us. It is this glory that John spotlights that we might understand the purpose of Jesus' death, and the purpose of our lives. It is this glory. It is this glory that John spotlights. So here's my proposition for you this morning. Following Christ demands that we live for his glory by losing our lives that we might gain his. Following Christ demands that we live for his glory by losing our lives that we might gain his. Just a couple, two main points this morning. We must understand the implications of what he has done for us and we must be obedient to the demands his death places upon us. So we must understand the implications of what he has done for us and we must be obedient to the demands of his death places upon us. The Westminster Catechism was written between 1646 and 1647 as a way to educate Christians on what it means to live for Christ as a theological educational tool for them to understand who God is, what God has done, and how we live before him. And the very first, and it's a set of questions, and it was used primarily at first to educate children, and it's a set of questions to help us understand. So it asks a question and then it gives a, a wonderful biblical theological answer. Well, the very first question of the Westminster Catechism, which I'm sure many of you are familiar of, with is this. What is man's chief end? What is man's chief end? Why does mankind exist? What is mankind here for? What is mankind's purpose? What is humanity's chief end? And then they answer the question. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the way we glorify God and the way we enjoy Him forever is to understand the implications of what He has done for us and to be obedient to the demands his death places upon us. 
in living for Christ. So number one, we understand, we must understand the implications of what he has done for us. Knowledge is important. Understanding the truths of the gospel and its implications has a direct effect on the way we live. If I ask you what is the gospel and you cannot clearly articulate the gospel, it means that you will not clearly understand the implications of what it means to live for Christ in light of the gospel. We need to understand we must have that knowledge. We cannot preach the gospel to ourselves and to others if we don't understand what the gospel is. Jesus' hour is his glorification revealed in his death. His glorification is the culmination of the gospel, the very gospel that extends all these wonderful benefits to us. But we must understand the basic foundation of what the gospel is. We have to understand the death of Christ and the glory of God so that we understand its implications upon our lives. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The first thing is his death means judgment upon this world. But we are no longer judged. What a wonderful gospel truth. That judgment has come to the world. That's what this hour coming means. And although the final judgment is yet to come, the beginning of God's judgment is at this moment. John 12, 47, which we'll read next week, Jesus says that he did not come to judge, but he came to save. But those who reject him condemn themselves to eternal judgment. To those who have come to faith in Christ, Christ has taken their judgment away. He has suffered their punishment. They are now the righteousness of God in Christ. D.A. Carson said this, The world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus not only as it perpetually debated who he was, but ultimately at the cross. In reality, the cross was passing judgment on them. The cross brings judgment, but it also reminds us that we are free from judgment. His death means that Satan is cast out. No longer does the prince of the air rule so much so. I mean, Satan is so much so the ruler of mankind that he is called in this verse their prince. That those who don't follow Christ, Satan is known as their prince. But his rule and his reign have been defeated at the cross. And even though the cross appeared to be a triumph of evil, it was a stunning defeat over Satan and over evil and over death. Again, Carson says, although the cross might seem like Satan's triumph, it is in fact his defeat. The fundamental smashing of his reign of tyranny takes place in the death and glorification of Jesus. Jesus' death means he will return to the glory of heaven. 
Jesus is not only lifted up on the cross to die, he is lifted up to glory at that moment. It is a double meaning. It is not just being lifted up to die on the cross. It is a symbol of Christ being lifted up in his return to heaven, to his glory. Even as Jesus suffered and was marred beyond comprehension, as Isaiah 52 states, God is exalting him above all names. God is returning him to the glory that he himself emptied on our behalf. Verse 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Just as the Israelites were healed when Moses lifted up the bronze serpent. This is what John is referring to, that we are healed when we look to Christ. As Jesus is lifted up, the promise is that one day we will be lifted up. As he is glorified, the promise is that one day we'll be exalted. That we will reign with him. We will dwell with him. And yet the crowd, once again, does not understand as they throughout John's gospel, continually ask, who is this man? In verse 30, 34, who is the son of man? Who is this guy? And here John is, again, wanting us to understand from 2031, Jesus is, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God that we might believe in him and by believing have life in his name. And in verse 32, his death draws all men to himself. All men to himself. We must understand the implications of his death, of the gospel, of his glorification. We must understand this gospel truth because if you do not understand the gospel, you can't live for Christ as you are intended to live. You must, you must be able to grasp when somebody asks you, what is the gospel? To be able to say, well, it is his it is his birth, it is his life, it is his death, it is his resurrection, his ascension. Yes, it is all those things. It is understanding that Christ has died for my sins. It is understanding that God has come, that his hour came for the purpose of glorifying his name. That the gospel is about the glory of God. It is the good news and yes, the benefits for us are innumerable. But, but this hour and this cross and this death and this resurrection and this ascension and this return to heaven is first and foremost about the glory of God. What is man's chief end? His chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Secondly, we must be obedient to the gospel, to what his death, 
the demands his death places on us. We must be obedient to the demands his death places upon us. Being a Christian, living for Christ, carries some pretty heavy demands. Remember in John 6, Jesus is talking about, you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. And many of his disciples says, this is too hard a saying. Who can follow it? And many of his disciples left him that day. And as we read John 12, we begin to see some new demands that are very challenging to us. Truly, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Truly, truly is Jesus' way of drawing attention to an important statement he is making. The way to fruitfulness, Jesus says, is through death. Now, Jesus is speaking primarily of himself and his death here, that he must die like a single seed. He must die alone. He must be buried. And then he must be raised again to life. And that in that hour of his death, when he dies, he will yield a rich harvest, which is you sitting in this room this morning. And the application of the analogy of the, the grain is made plain here where he says in verse 25, whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, the Greek word for lose here can also be interpreted or translated destroy. So whoever loves his life in essence destroys their life. Whoever hates his life will keep it for eternal life. Now what does it mean to hate your life? Does it literally mean to, to hate yourself? No, it's not what it means. Does it mean that you hate it doesn't mean that you hate who you are. It means that you hate whatever in your life steals your love for Christ or diminishes your love for Christ. It means that you hate whatever is a barrier between you and the Savior. And there are so many things in this life that can creep in between us and the Savior. And Jesus goes on to explain, and, and, and John helps us to understand what it means to, to not love your life, but to, to give your life. Look at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus did not love his life above his father's will. Now listen, his soul was deeply troubled. Troubled at the prospect of physical pain. Troubled, more importantly, at the prospect of being spiritually separated from God. 
from his father. His soul was in agony, so much so that he sweated drops of blood as he prays in the garden. But that did not deter him from what he was sent to do. The the sense of dread upon the Savior was tremendous. This past summer, as my three children and their spouses and my grandchildren and my wife and I were all at the beach together, we had a, a, a large beach home that we rented out and it had a little pool in the back and, and, and dinner time is, is when you've got all these families together, dinner time is a crazy time and everybody's running around trying to do things and the kids are playing. And my granddaughter, Kate, as you know, is autistic. She doesn't speak. Um, Kate needs constant care and we were, and she's six years old and actually seven today. And, and she's, she's, in, she's usually sitting quietly looking at her iPad or playing with her toys and uh, everybody's just busy and somewhere around six o'clock just as dinner's getting getting ready somebody goes where's Kate and and everybody begins looking around the room and and where's Kate and and so we look outside at the pool and where's Kate and everybody's going upstairs and downstairs and Kate is nowhere to be found And somebody goes to the front door and notices the front door's open. And so immediately every, almost all the adults go charging out the door. And and the beach is across the street. It's a neighborhood filled with houses and small pools. That moment of dread. Where's Kate? That moment of fear of the prospect of what could happen to Kate I found her three blocks away walking on the sidewalk I remember putting her on my shoulders walking her back Anne coming and her mom finding me as Anne was running through backyards and just putting her head on my chest and sobbing as we had found Kate and when we got back to the house, I just remember all night long moments, I would just start weeping as I considered what could have happened to Kate. The dread I felt at losing my granddaughter. The dread a parent feels when you're in a mall or at a playground and you cannot see your child and you wonder that dread, you know that moment and that dread does not compare to now my soul is troubled. And yet with the depth of troubling in his soul, with the depth of dread in his soul, with the depth of fear and anxiety that is tempting him. The desire to be saved from that hour. Jesus says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' life was for one purpose, and that is to glorify his Father. 
for Jesus to have loved his life more than his obedience to God would have been a fundamental denial of God's sovereign will for him, even though God's will and his obedience was painful and costly. Listen, sometimes our obedience is costly. And we might think, this is too hard. And fall into the temptation and trap of denying God's sovereign plan by attempting to take control of our lives. Oh, I've had these thoughts. I'm not happy with the circumstances that God has placed me in. I'm not happy with the circumstances that God has determined for me. So I'll change them. I don't like my life right now. I will change it. I don't like where this is heading. I don't like the cost that it will be. It's too hard. I will change it. I'm angry that God has planned my life like this. I will change it. The cost to live life the way God expects me to is too high. So I will do just enough just enough to get by in my Christian life to assuage my guilt. Because I am not going where he wants me to go. The demands and sacrifice of the Christian faith can at times seem too demanding. Oh, not everyone is called to serve that much. No one is like Nora. Nobody's called to serve like Nora. Serving my family always comes first. I have an extremely busy life. What more can you expect? And yet the very thing that Jesus is calling you to demands, demands that you die. It demands that you hate your life. It means you follow Christ wherever he goes. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Now he's talking about following in his footsteps, following in his pathway to dying like a seed, following in his footsteps to hating your life, that you will not lose it. If you are wrestling with God to keep the life that you want, Jesus' words here are, you're losing. You're losing your life. Jesus' life defines what it means for us to hate our lives. What it means to die, to take up our cross daily and follow after him. It means we follow the way of Christ, the path of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the service of Christ. Jesus' words are emphatic here. We must follow him. But here's the promise he gives in the midst of this. Eternal life. And if anyone serves me, the Father honors him. The sacrifice of dying and living for Christ. The sacrifice of losing your life that you might gain his 
is eternal life and honor by God. And Jesus speaks to the crowd. And in essence, he tells them, this is what it means to be one of mine. And he ends with an interesting comment. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. In verse 35, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. John in 2031 says that all of this is written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. He says in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And he is saying here, I have been among you for so long. Do you still not see? Walk in the light while it is still possible. If you have not put your faith in Christ, this passage serves as a warning for you. Walk in the light because the light is going. There will be a time where you will not walk in the light, where the light is not available to you. Because if you keep refusing Christ, you condemn yourself to eternal darkness and to the same fate of Satan of being cast out. Brothers and sisters, this passage demands much from us. Much from Christians and much for non-Christians. This is the first, not the first time, like I said, Jesus has said hard things. No matter where we go in the Bible, no matter where you open your scriptures, we cannot escape what it means to live for Christ. Not to earn our salvation. We cannot do that. That has been earned for us by Jesus saying this is the hour. By his death on the cross, he has earned our salvation. But it does give evidence to our salvation by the way we live. And let me encourage you, be careful not to take these words to heart just when they're preached. Because it may be months or years before we get to a passage that again demands so much from you. And there's a lot of relief that can take place between now and then. We must be careful to consider these words long after they've been preached or read. Gospel living is living that glorifies God. It is living that displays growth in holiness. It means forward progress no matter how small as a Christian. Are you progressing in your love? Are you progressing in your obedience? Are you progressing in your worship? Is dying a regular part of your life? 
is serving a regular part of your life? Can you say with faith, Father, glorify your name in my life? I understand your life may not be easy. I understand that there may be things in your life that aren't the way you want them to be. But you serve a sovereign God who has determined and planned the circumstances of your life for His glory and for your good. Let us, as Grace Church, be people who live to glorify God. Let's pray. Father, every one of us in this room is aware of how difficult it is at times to live obediently, to live sacrificially, to live a life of death to what we want that we might serve your purposes. And so, Lord, we simply ask for you to help us We're so grateful you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, to empower us, to teach us, to counsel us, to strengthen us, to protect us, to convict us where we are not following after you or where we are just getting by. Help us, Lord, we ask this morning. Pour out your spirit upon us, we ask this morning that we might bring glory to your name and that we might enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.